the overarching research question is what roles, if any, does the European <coughs> Court of Justice play in the Europeanisation of communicable disease control? And a standard legal account of the process of European integration puts the court very much in the driving seat. So the standard legal account says the court is driving the process. The story of the creation of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control has not been told in that way. None of the papers that we've heard and none of the discussion we've had suggests that the court is in that situation. And there are, I can say definitively, no legal accounts of the ECDC. This will be the first one. Um, So maybe I started thinking, panicking more, (laughs) the European Court of Justice is totally irrelevant. It (laughs) operates in some kind of parallel universe to what everybody else is talking about, and I'm going to have absolutely nothing to say how embarrassing. In fact, what I'm trying to argue in the paper is that neither the driving seat nor the parallel universe metaphor appropriately accounts for the role of the European Court of Justice in terms of the Europeanisation of communicable disease control. Instead, what I'm trying to show is that the court's activities formed an important part of the institutional context which made the development of European Union communicable disease control, and in particular the establishment of the ECDC, possible. So if you like, the paper is making a very simple argument without the court, one of the key institutional features of the path to the Europeanisation of communicable disease control in general, and the creation of the ECDC in particular, would be missing. So it's a very, very small, very um, lacking in ambition paper. Okay, so the, the four or maybe five ways in which I think the European Court of Justice has con- contributed to, and I don't want to put it any more strongly than that, to the Europeanisation of communicable disease control, are these ideas. The idea that the EU has responsibility for public health itself, and that it's not just a national matter, um, The idea that it is constitutionally permissible to have agencies in the EU and delegate powers to them. Mm. Um, The idea that EU legislation that protects public health is both mandatory and justiciable, and that's something that's been implicit in our discussion so far but not made explicit, is that one of the special things about the European Union is the power of its law compared to the power of ordinary international law. So I think that's one of the key things that the court has contributed here to the overall institutional environment. And then the last thing is that, nevertheless, EU public health law is protected by the court from what could be a liberalising force of internal market law, free movement law, freedom, the the idea of of freedom being sort of a constitutionally embedded idea in in the European Union, that the European Court of Justice has paid attention to the implications of that in the context of public health and communicable disease. And then the last bullet point is very tentative and undeveloped, so if anybody's interested, I can develop it in the discussion. So here's the standard legal account, very um, briefly, that um, 
the European Court of Justice decides uh, a legal case. This is described as a critical juncture. It opens up new political possibilities. Um, the member states uh, then panic. They ask the European Commission to do something about it. The European Commission then comes up with a pro legislative proposal. The European Parliament and Council adopts the, the new legislation. All of that happens, though, within the idea that the EU has constrained powers. So the, the, the legislature can only do things within the competences of the EU. And we learned a little bit yesterday about this, that the historical development of the competence provisions of the EU uh, over, over time and through the different treaties. And the other thing that's really important about the standard legal account is that it's hierarchical, that where EU law is competently adopted, it stands in a, in a relationship of superiority over national law and practice. All the accounts that we've talked about so far have the opposite of that in terms of communicable disease control. It's not court-driven. There are no legal cases. There is very little legislation. There is some. We've talked about some that, that, that there is, but it's not, it's not a big thing. Competence apparently was not an issue politically. This was touched on yesterday. And it's very heterarchical. It doesn't assume models of hierarchy. So the standard legal account doesn't take us very far. So what has the European Court of Justice then done, taking us outside of that standard legal account? So I just want to take us briefly through the four headings that are elaborated in more detail in my written paper. The first thing that the court did, and it does this in extremely low-profile cases involving importing pharmaceuticals, importing beef and veal and raw cow hides um, between France and Italy. So the, these are not high political salience legal, legal cases. The court makes this rhetorical move, and it says... What the EC Treaty, the constitution of the, the EEC at the time, cares about is the health and life of, of humans. They have a very high rank and significance in terms of the interests that are protected by the treaty. So this rhetorical move is made very early on, it's made in low-profile cases, but the idea is a piece of court-developed law. It's not made explicit in the treaty. It would, be perfect, would have been perfectly feasible for the European Court of Justice to interpret the treaty in a different way, as simply leaving the protection of health to the member states, to national law and policy. So we have this idea that human health protection is an important part of European Union law, and that piece of European Union law is developed by the court. It's not found in any of the legislative or treaty text. So by the early 90s, at the time when the BSE crisis was hitting the European Union, the European Court of Justice was able to say, you know, health and life of, of humans and, and indeed animals is a very important thing for the European Union. Public health protection, including communicable disease control, is part of the obligations of the European Union. It's protected by the treaty. It's not just an obligation of the member states. It's not accepted from or excluded from the application of EU law. It's embedded 
in the evil. So I'm saying here that over a period of time, the court's jurisprudence, the line of cases that the court decides, can be seen as part of the overall circumstances, the path in the sense of historical institutionalism, that allowed for the refocusing of EU food policy, including the development of the European Food Safety Authority, and the, later on then, the creation of the European Environmental Agency, perhaps we might say, and indeed the creation of the ECDC. The court's role is not the driver of the process, there's no key case or group of cases that we can point to as a critical juncture, but the court's contribution is in creating part of the institutional environment that made the, creations of the, the creation of these agencies feasible. Once the institutional environment, in the sense of the idea of EU responsibility for public health protection, had been established in principle, it could then be extended to areas beyond food law, which is where most of the, well, all of the, these cases are. So that's the first example. The second one is, is this. As we've seen, communicable disease policy in the EU is centred upon the activities of several different <coughs> EU agencies, and I needed to borrow Bernard's map here for, to have the, the map of the agencies. I should have done that. Um, we've got the European Food Safety Authority. I think the European Environment Agency needs to mm. be included, the European Medicines Agency, and the, obviously the ECDC. But the original constitutional settlement in terms of the separation of powers between governmental-type institutions within the European economic community, made no provision for tasks that were entrusted by the governments of member states to the Commission to then be delegated to other bodies. There, there was nothing in the original treaty that allowed for that. However, over several decades, the European Court of Justice reinterpreted the EU's constitutional texts to make delegation to agencies constitutionally permissible. So again, I'm saying this is not the driver of the process, but this is part of the institutional landscape that leads us to the ECDC and European Communicable Disease Control. Third thing, then, is this... Um, binding nature of European Union law. So as I started to say in the, in the discussion there, and as I've, I've said th throughout my paper, European Union law and policy on communicable diseases is scattered across a whole load of different areas of European Union law and policy. And for this part of my paper, I took the example of European environmental law because that's the body of European Union law that covers air and waterborne communicable diseases. Environmental law is consistently an area where member state compliance is slow and deficient. And here, it's these constitutional qualities of European Union law, its binding nature, <coughs> its justiciable nature, that play a role in terms of securing European Europeanisation processes in the sense of policy compliance at national level, so that sense of Europeanisation. And again here, the court has played a very important role in the context of litigation where the European Commission 
brings a member state before the European Court of Justice for breaching EU law. This is now found in Article, two, oh, Article 258 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And the text of that provision, which is summarised, there basically says, if the Commission considers a member state has failed to fulfil an obligation in EU law, it may bring that state before the court. That's all that the text says. It's, it's, it's very um, bare, like a constitutional text usually. So there's nothing in there about the approach that the court should take in these cases. There's nothing in there about how much the court should take into account any explanation that the defaulting member state gives. Member states might have lots of reasons for not complying with EU law, and not all of them would be a deliberate departure from their obligations. So particularly in areas like environmental law, things like lack of supporting infrastructure, lack of capacity, lack of parliamentary time, lack of enforcement authorities, all of those things might explain actual non-compliance. If the European Court of Justice were to be sympathetic to the real context within which this non-compliance litigation is being brought, then the effect of that would be to diminish the mandatory quality of EU law. But in fact, the court's approach has been utterly the opposite to that. Consistently, the court has said that defences that would apply in ordinary international law, things like um, the member state has entered a reservation, national sovereignty or national autonomy has been compromised, local remedies have not yet been exhausted, or that the EU itself or the other member states haven't complied with their corresponding obligations. All of these things are acceptable excuses in international law. None of them is an acceptable excuse in EU law. And the European Court of Justice has developed that by stressing <coughs> the special nature of European Union law. It is a new legal order, says the court, not part of ordinary international law. Now again, the relevant case law is in low profile areas like trade law, the common agricultural policy. Well, we might disagree that the common agricultural policy is a low profile area, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. Boring. But no. <laughs> but not interesting for the media unless it's mad cows. But the principles that the court established then in these low-profile cases then held good when the court came to use them to decide cases involving um, failure to implement areas of the EU's environmental policy with implications for public health. Last example, and least well-developed in the written paper. Let's see if I can explain this. So... As well as supporting this mandatory quality of EU public health law, the court's jurisprudence also protects those bits of EU public health legislation that exist from the potentially liberalising and therefore undermining internal market <coughs> rules that exist in the treaties, which are like the EU's constitution. Without this element of the institutional environment for um, the EU's um, Europe, for the Europeanisation of Communicable Disease Control. Without this element, the law of the internal market, the law on freedom of movement of goods of people, would be able to override any restrictive measures that the European Union had adopted that would seek to control communicable diseases on the basis that liberalisation of the internal market mandates their removal. 
Now, that's not the way that the, that the law has developed, but without it, logically, that would have been the case. So the court originally says, it's up to the member states, this, this is in the early case law, the court originally says it's up to the member states to decide how much they want to protect human health. But they, the court can't just say that, because if they just say that, then they could give up on the internal market and free movement altogether. So what they do is they develop a legal principle, the principle of proportionality, that allows them to control this national discretion. And what's good and important about the principle of proportionality is that it's a very flexible legal principle. It can have a very soft meaning and a very strong meaning. So over time, the court's jurisprudence changes from a soft scrutiny of national public health protection measures through to a much more stringent scrutiny of public health protection measures without needing to change the rule because the legal rule is just the principle of proportionality, which is very flexible. And that means that as the, Euro as the European Union legislature develops um, its legislation, the court is then able to get stricter and stricter with the way it applies the proportionality test when it's looking at national measures that are notionally to protect public health but that impede free movement of goods uh, and people in the internal market. And as the proportionality test gets stricter, there is both less litigation on free movement and there's also less chance of success if a trader brings a case saying that a national that, that a, a piece of, of, um, uh, of uh, uh, public health protection law or policy impedes free movement, it's more difficult for the trader to be successful over time. Okay. Yep. And the European Court of Justice starts off by referring only to the treaty texts during the course of this time. But by the end of the time, the court refers more and more to EU legislation, which controls the public health concerns <coughs> that are, are being discussed. And it's able to change, its, um, it's, able to change its, its legal approach to these cases without having to change the law because of the principle of proportionality, which allows it this flexibility. So, concluding in one minute, the court was not the driver of this process, but I hope I've convinced you that the court was also not inhabiting a parallel universe during the time frame leading up to the establishment of the ECDC. Rather, the court's activities played an important role or, or part, played an important part, and not obviously not an exclusive part, in creating the institutional environment within which the gradual and continued Europeanization of communicable disease control takes place.